0: Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts,
1: or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hey, it's Alec Baldwin. This past season on my podcast, Here's the Thing, I spoke with more actors, musicians, policymakers, and so many other fascinating people, like jazz bassist Christian McBride. Jazz is based on improvisation, but there's very much a
1: form to it. You have a conversation based on that melody and those chord changes.
0: So it's kind of like giving someone a topic and say, okay, talk about this. Listen to the new season of Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey kids, this is Alan Sachs. If your parents are letting you listen to this show, tell them they shouldn't. Listener discretion is advised.
1: It's late at night in 1982. You're home in Los Angeles, flipping channels, and you come across, I guess you could call it like a variety show. Hi, welcome to New Wave Theater. Well, you've arrived on time tonight, but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Slapping the back of an ox never was, especially one that's stuck in the mire of history that was never recorded. The host of the show slides into frame... He's wearing a pink sequin jacket, and as he starts to speak, he pulls out sunglasses and puts them on. If you want to be a sphinx, you must first be a sphinx. He's giving a strange monologue. It doesn't make a lot of sense. History shows us that if you've got the budget, you can sell a camel, a toothbrush, or even make yourself the hero of your own version of the history of the world. The host screeches and vamps, then throws to the band over clips of... A rat being stroked with a Barbie doll's hand? This thing you're watching is a public access show called New Wave Theater. Imagine early MTV meets experimental film with a cocaine fueled director pulling the strings. It's hosted by a friend of mine, Peter Ivers. We're forcing new life into music and new wave music into life. New Wave Theater is fast becoming the ultimate underground alternative, and we thank you for your healthy response. Shows real hope for the future. This genre of TV doesn't really exist anymore. Public access was like primitive YouTube. Almost anyone could get a 30-minute slot, usually late at night on local channels. The quality varied quite a bit, but every once in a while you could find something great. Public Access gave us Elvira, Tom Green, and even if you think about it, Wayne's World.
0: Daily reminder, Thursday, purchase Feeble Public Access Cable Show and exploit it. Whoa, I feel sorry for whoever that is. Let's look over here.
1: Wayne's World is a film that I directed, but we will come back to me later. Anyway, New Wave Theater was a public access show that showcased LA punk bands in all their grungy glory.
0: The unknowns, the streets, circle jerks, one of the five lost tribes of punk,
1: Levi Dexter and the tribe, Cannibal Party, Eat Your Neighbor
0: from Phoenix, Arizona, killer pussy.
1: Which is why it was surprising to see Peter Ivers as the host. ...in a spiffy pink sequin jacket and showing his three chest hairs. But he's adorable and and very, very sweet and um, kind of goofy. Definitely not a punk. Didn't have that eat shit attitude. (laughs) He was a cool dude. Yeah, that was Peter Ivers. Elvira and I make such a perfect couple. We may get married at a red wedding. So we make history! This story is about him. It's about the show he hosted, New Wave Theater, but it's also about LA's underground music scene in the early 80s. It had punks and artists and comedians and TV celebrities all circling around this strange, singular cultural moment. You'd walk into a scuzzy club and see John Belushi talking to Black Flag or David Lee Roth yucking it up with me, or even Bruce Springsteen over there watching the band on stage. And there were some shady characters too, people you prefer not to meet, unless, of course, you were looking to get high or get robbed or both. It was a weird mix of people in a weird city at a weird time. And I was there. So was Peter. He was right in the middle of it all. Until he was murdered in March of 1983. And I just remember falling to the floor, blood-curdling scream.
0: I just, I couldn't stop. Peter Ivers is dead. It was like getting hit with a boom. <laughs> it's not possible. All of that, wow, we're going to live forever. Anything can happen. All that youthful optimism suddenly went, Arr!
1: when Peter Ivers was murdered for the punk scene and for Hollywood his death was a sobering moment and it raised a question that 40 years later we still don't know the answer to who killed peter ivers i'm penelope spheras and this is peter and the acid king Peter Ivers is a hard guy to sum up. He was the host of New Wave Theater, but also a film composer and a Harvard graduate. He practiced yoga and mindfulness years before it became Hollywood bullshit. He had a black belt in karate, believe it or not. Peter was also a fixture on the L.A. nightlife scene flitting from a punk show to a party in Laurel Canyon to an after-hours joint in Hollywood and everywhere in between. But maybe most importantly, people loved Peter. He was attractive in all senses of that word. I don't know if I was, like, physically attracted, but just I found him, his mind
0: and his spirit and his depth. He had a lot going on. Peter was the fulfillment of one of the ideals of that period, which was the Renaissance man.
1: Peter was Mr. Kundalini Yoga sex god. So he had all these women losing their minds over him. He was very comfortable in his own skin and seemed like he really had a vision for things which could be kind of intense, but then also was just so playful and silly and sort of game to try anything. Just, you know, sort of boundary pushing and fun. That last voice you heard was Violet Ramus. She's the daughter of Anne and Harold Ramus. He directed movies like Caddyshack and Groundhog Day. Harold and Peter were friends, and Harold introduced Anne to Peter. He came over to our house. We were going to do yoga together. All of a sudden, you know, here's this new character teaching me yoga and um, some karate moves and then asking me if I wanted to sing in his show at the Club Lingerie. Okay, yeah, I'm five years old. I'd love that. (laughs) Even though Peter was in his 30s, he had this Peter Pan quality to him. He was such a mischievous Kind of fellow. And I remember his mother used to always send him bigger shirts than he was. She just thought of him as bigger than he was. When he came into the room, everyone looked, everyone wanted him to notice what they were doing. He was small, but he took up a lot of space. Peter's relationship with the Ramus family shows how unique he was. Harold liked Peter's counterculture cred. Anne liked Peter's softer spiritual side. And Violet liked having a friend who treated her like a person, not just a little kid.
0: He played the harmonica for Violet. And she was spellbound, you know,
1: because it was something that she could do. We got a little harmonica for her that she would wear on a chain, and she would play it all the time. So I I liked that. I thought it would be a good way for her to be able to express herself. The point is, Peter met you where you were. He came to your window and whisked you away to a land of fun and excitement. That way of being in the world attracted many people. And I was one of those people. So you may ask yourself, who is this bitch? (laughs) Ron, can you show us where you
0: live, please? You mean, like, specifically, like, where I sleep?
1: Yeah. I'm Penelope Spheris, and I'm a filmmaker. That clip is of me, 40-some years ago, interviewing Black Flag at a vacant church they lived in. It's a
0: three-room. It's not, it's not exactly what you would call a penthouse or
1: anything like that, but this is where, I, this is where all the action goes on, right? It's definitely not a penthouse, Ron, Ron lifts a curtain in front of a tiny hole in the wall, like where Harry Potter sleeps, but with graffiti, empty forties, and some girl's raggedy fishnets. Is that a bed? Mm. Okay, let's see. Is that a bed? <laughs> How much does it cost? Uh, sixteen dollars a month. How much do you make per month when you when you uh, as, as a performer? Uh, pretty much nothing. Negative. That clips from my documentary about L.A. punk, The Decline of Western Civilization. I shot The Decline back in 1979 and 80, before New Wave Theater even existed. And later, I sold out and directed some Hollywood movies like Wayne's World.
0: It's like people only do things because they get paid. And that's just really sad.
1: But the reality is, I'm a punk at heart. There was a specific moment in my music video career, because I had a music video company in Los Angeles called uh, Rock and Reel, and I was putting some equipment back in the equipment house and standing at the counter, and this dude next to me says, have you ever heard of the Sex Pistols? And I said, no. And he goes, listen to the Sex Pistols. So I did and it was really a life-changing moment for me. I think what made me fall in love with punk rock, if you can do that, is I totally related to the people that were in the scene because they were a bunch of rejects. I always felt like I was a reject too, you know? I had a really difficult upbringing and you know, four kids the living in a trailer with a drunk mom and dad and everybody's bloody every week. That's why being in a mosh pit didn't bother me, you know, because I mean, shit, I was like moshing every week in my family home, you know. And that's what made me get on the, on the punk rock trail. These stray dogs banded together <laughs> and loved each other in a way that... They didn't have that kind of love in their own families, and so they formed new families. These people are very honest and giving. They're good people, but not the posers. You know, the posers can kiss my ass. Peter Ivers wasn't a punk, and he wasn't a poser either. He was something else. As for new wave theater, it always rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, it showcased punk bands, but at its core, I thought it was total jive. Part of the problem was right there in its name, New Wave. I don't know if it's legit or cool to quote my own movie, but Claude Bessie gave the best definition of uh, New Wave and how it fit into the scene. There's
0: no such thing as New Wave. It does not exist. There's new music, there's new underground sound, there's noise, there's punk, there's power pop, there's ska, there's rockabilly, but New Wave doesn't mean shit. The
1: tension between punk and so-called New Wave made New Wave theater an uncomfortable thing to watch. Why are people so afraid today? What do you think is the ultimate reason? Watch the film. You don't want to give me uh, clear answers to a question about how to change things? (sighs) Haven't slept. Still, the show attracted attention, so much so that it got picked up by a real TV company, the USA Network. By 1983, it was becoming Peter Ivers' claim to fame. And then it all went to hell.
0: The first time I met Peter, he was wearing a towel. He was, in, he, was in the, he was in the baths. I was there. I was wearing a towel. We were both wearing towels.
1: That's Alan Sachs. He may be best known for co-creating the show Welcome Back, Cotter. And he discovered John Travolta. Back in the 80s, he was a big deal TV executive by day. And by night, Alan was a punk. In another place, in another time, someone like Alan Sachs would never have known someone like Peter Ivers. But this was L.A. in the early 1980s. So here they are,
0: sitting in a sauna together. And I was happy to meet Peter. I always wanted to meet Peter. He was a center of a lot of people around, hearing his stories. And he always had great stories. I liked he had a certain sarcasm about him. And I liked his sense of humor. I liked his intelligence.
1: Alan and Peter would go to dinner, talk about meditation and the TV business. Sometimes they would party together. Cut to the morning of March 3rd, 1983. Alan had stayed up all night partying before flying to New York. By the time he arrives, he's hungover and bleary-eyed.
0: I had stayed up all night, flew to New York the next day. I was um, at um, my friend Ratso, was working with John Cale from the Velvets, brought me over to Cale's place. He was going to play me some music that they were, that Cale and Ratso were working on. And answering machines were a new phenomenon then. People are always checking it.
1: Back then, an answering machine was this thing on the desk, and you would 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 call yourself and press a button and listen to your messages. So Alan calls to check his messages. Even though he's a party monster, he's still a TV producer. Maybe something important's going on.
0: And I had a message, and it said,
1: Peter Ivers is dead. Peter Ivers was dead. Not just dead, murdered. Which was crazy, because Alan, Alan had just seen Peter alive at the spot Alan had been partying at, the spot they all partied at.
0: I had literally just seen Peter before I got on the plane. We had been hanging out at at the cave, and he got into his little sports car, which I believe was a Fiat, little beaten up, and he drove off, and I never saw him again. That was March 2nd, 1983. 40 years ago, 40 years, wow. The next morning, March 3rd, he was found by his neighbor, Jim Tucker. He walked into Peter's room, and Peter was lying there in bed, covered with a bloody blanket. And when Jim got closer, he could see that Peter's head had been bashed in. And this news is shocking and sad,
1: of course. But it's also frightening, because now there's a murderer among us.
0: And that was really scary. Because I was going to be going back. I didn't want to come back to L.A. I didn't want to be back in that scene if there's a murderer walking around.
1: The news of Peter's death spread fast. The punks, the artists, the film people, everyone was talking. I honestly don't remember how I heard it. I mean... But word went around really super fast. Everybody knew, like, right away.
0: We were at Al's Bar. We were
1: in the little coffee shops at the Atomic Cafe. And suddenly it was like, did you hear Peter
0: Ivers got murdered?
1: He told me that Peter died.
0: She said, Peter's been murdered.
1: This isn't some kind of joke, right? I'll
0: never forget it. we had already had a couple people die of drugs. But to be murdered, it was like, holy fuck. People started showing up at Peter's loft to see if the rumors were true to see if he was really dead. This was before the cops even got there. I don't know if they had been called and just were slow getting to the scene or what, but by the time the cops did actually arrive, the loft was full of people. It looked like a cocktail party. Peter's friends, some people, maybe even just random people who wanted to see what all the excitement was about. I mean, people like Harold Ramis, the guy who wrote Animal House, he ended up there. It was a total madhouse. People walking everywhere, running off with Peter's stuff, which is not great if you were a detective and were trying to preserve evidence.
1: Outside the scene, not many people knew this unique, charismatic guy. But for those around him, like Ann Ramos, Peter's death changed everything. I can't remember how unreal it all seemed. I mean, later on, it became more unreal. Um, I wasn't even sure that it was true. you know i I would be riding my bike and think, well, what if i
0: what if I'm on the astral level and I'm, you know passed over? I mean, this can't this does it just didn't feel real.
1: You know, I have this concept that maybe certain people are just too good to be on the face of this earth. And my brother was like that. My brother was killed by a drunk driver in 1984. And he was just too good to be here, you know? My daughter's father died of a heroin overdose when she was four years old. He was too good to be here. And that's the way I think about Peter. So I'm not going to talk graphically about Peter's murder. I'm going to let other people handle that part. I almost didn't take this gig because of the whole idea of turning murder into entertainment. It, it, it's it's just, that's, that's just not my thing. Anyway, after Peter's death, the police started an investigation. But 40 years later, no one's been charged or even arrested. For all of us who loved Peter, the lack of answers really hurts.
0: I, I just couldn't understand why anyone wanted to kill someone like Peter Rivas. Everybody loved Peter. One guy who never forgot Peter was Alan
1: Sachs. A few years back... Alan decided to start his own investigation to try and make sense of this terrible thing. He started talking to people, pulling theories together. And so it's
0: mostly his interviews you'll hear in the episodes to come. And so I I just started looking into it and fuck, I almost wish I hadn't because I became obsessed with it. For 40 years I've been obsessed with it. And still... Although maybe it was cathartic, and maybe this is cathartic, that I did this and I'm talking about it, it became a, a, a release. Because people, you, you walked around this, this world, and suddenly one of the more innocent people in the world is dead in, in a gruesome, gruesome way. The more Alan learned, the wilder the story got. I learned that everybody wanted to talk about Peter Ivers. People were lining up to come and talk to me.
1: Over the rest of this series, we're going to talk about what he found and more. We're going to talk about the punk scene and the nightclub scene. We'll talk about David Lynch and cults and the occult and guns and drug gangs and record deals and Saturday Night Live and the National Lampoon and how they're all intertwined around Peter Ivers. And we're going to do it to celebrate Peter's life to try and shed some light on what happened to him and hopefully bring him some peace. Oh, and one last thing. We're going to at least try to find that shithead that did it.
0: I used to manage O.J. Simpson, and uh, I didn't think he did it until I did think he did it. And uh, it's a little bit how I feel (laughs) But I think that the possibility is strong that he went over the top. O-T-O. I was terrified that if had killed Peter and thought that I was suspicious of him, that it could be bad for me. He liked to fool around with other people's wives, which was very dangerous. He was having an affair with people he shouldn't be messing with. I'm sure was questioned a lot. It sounded to me like he owed people money. I mean, literally since a week it happened, I thought did it they didn't interview him they didn't he was never a suspect what? <laughs> he was never <laughs> of suspicion <laughs> that gives you even more faith in cops doesn't it
1: hey look at that a little mystery this should keep all of you deviant oddballs satisfied for a bit until the next episode anyway later days and better lays all right can i go now in the silence you can hear your thoughts Choose among them and design a future worth living for. On behalf of our producer, All World Stage, this is your bell captain, B-Boy Ivers, wishing you a fitful sleep in the arms
0: of Morpheus. Till next week.
1: Peter and the Acid King is based on interviews recorded and researched by Alan Sachs, it's produced by Imagine Audio, Alan Sachs Productions, and Awfully Nice for iHeartMedia. I'm your host, Penelope Spheres. The series is written by Caitlin Fontana. Peter and the Acid King is produced by Amber Von Schassen. The senior producer is Caitlin Fontana, and the supervising producer is John Asante. Our project manager is Katie Hodges. Our executive producers are Ron Howard, Brian Grazier, Alan Sachs, Cara Welker, Nathan Clokey, Jesse Burton, and Katie Hodges. The associate producers are Laura Schwartz, Dylan Kainrich, and Chris Statue. Co-producer on behalf of Shout Factory is Bob Emmer. Sound design and mix by Evan Arnett. Fact checking by Katherine Barner. Original music composed by Alloy Tracks. Music clearances by Barbara Hall. Voiceover recording by Voice Tracks West. Special thanks to Annette Van Juren. Thank you for listening.
0: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.